a very pleasant good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along this evening as we sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And, of course, to do that, every week we have to, not have to, I guess, that's a bad way of putting it, but we go down south to parts unknown to talk to our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, good evening. How are you? I am well, David, and uh, I have overcome my grief, as I am sure you have, uh, of the the failure of our teams this year. But uh, between now and the end of the year, we'll be talking about our brilliant ideas on how to improve the performance of both the Indians and the Reds, and maybe next year at this time we'll be in the playoffs as well. Well, I'm not sure if I would call it grief or just over-exuberance that maybe this season finally has come to a close. What do you think? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. For those of us who are baseball fans and for the people out there that, that kind of live and die with their team during the baseball season, it is it, it does affect your daily life in in the respect that uh, you know, if your team loses 38 one-run games like the Reds did this year, it's very frustrating. You know, you, you wake up, you say, oh, I can't believe I lost another game last night. Not that it, it's going to change your daily life necessarily, but it just kind of puts a it's, – it's like if it rained all summer. You know, it, it doesn't ruin your life, but it's just kind of something you wish didn't happen. And that, I think that's what happens when you're a big baseball fan and your team does not do well. Well, I agree with you there. I mean, it's – it's hard to believe, you know, really, Mark, that this baseball season is over, and now we go into, you know, the winter months and try to decide, or not we try to decide, but the teams try to decide just what it is that they're going to do to improve for next season. And right now I think the number one thing on the Reds' minds has got to be, A, what is the status of Joey Votto, and B, what are they going to do with Johnny Cueto? Well, if I had to guess what they're going to do, the, the Reds have they have a lot of talent on that team. And I think if I was Walt Jockety, and I'm not, but I, here's what I would do. I would keep that pitching rotation they've got. I would keep everybody they can get because everybody signed through 2015. <clears throat> so in the, in the short term, I would keep them. I would then go to the free agent market and try and get that hitter on a, on a one to two year deal. Maybe, you know, find lightning in a bottle like Cruz of last year. Uh, because they're going to have to bring some new talent in. They're not going to sign Ludwig for sure. I doubt they're going to sign Heisey. So they're one bat away or they could find a third baseman and put Frazier in left field. I think you mentioned that last week. I mean, that's, that's an option they have. They have to hope that Bruce comes back. They have to hope Hamilton is better. Hamilton wore down this year, by the way. He was he was just tired at the end of the year. So they they've got some options, but if they if they're not competitive through the first half of the year, then that is when you consider trading a Cueto or a Latos or a Leak, because you've got you will have them for the first half of the year. If they're pitching well, the team is winning. You have a chance to win the World Series with that pitching staff. And then if they're not up around June, July, you trade them, and you get draft choices, and you get something a major league quality player in return. Imagine if Cueto has a good year next year. What could you get for Johnny Cueto? You could get a lot. So th- there's a lot of things to be done, but I-, I think the Reds would be foolish to break up the pitching staff 
go get you know three hitters and then lose games ten to nine as opposed to two to one. That, that, that doesn't. You have to manage this logically, and one more bat, somebody hitting two eighty with twenty five home runs in left field, the Reds would have won a lot more games this year, David. It, 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 you don't need to reinvent this team. You simply have to be smart about how to use the asset you got. Well, that's absolutely correct, you know, and it's the same way when you look at the Indians. They've got to be smart in what they're going to do. Unfortunately, it's been the Indians' track record that I don't think that they are going to be smart in what they do. And I and I hate to say that, but ever since this regime of Mark Shapiro has taken over for John Hart after the Jacobs brothers sold the club to the Dolans, this team has been on a downward spiral as far as talent evaluation is concerned. And again, we're going to continue on with that as long as the Shapiro organization is there. We really don't know, like I said, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, Mark, whether or not Chris Antonetti is a good GM or not. Because he's got the former GM and Mark Shapiro peering over his shoulder, examining every move that this guy makes. I don't think you can work as a GM that way. Yeah, I agree. Um, getting back to the Indians, first of all, do you have any thought about what the Indians are going to do? Because it seems to me what the Indians need is what the Reds need. Um, yes. And, and, you know, the strange thing is it's been that way for two years. And another strange thing, Mark, that I heard was Mark Shapiro on the radio about a month ago said that the reason the Indians didn't go after Nelson Cruz, which would have been perfect for either club, and you and I have beat this thing, it's a dead horse. But I think it's interesting to, to point out that Mark Shapiro said the reason the Indians didn't go after Nelson Cruz is because he was a substandard left fielder. Well, you can't get any more substandard as a fielder than the entire Indians ball club when they finished last by five errors over everybody in Major League Baseball. So how bad could Nelson Cruz actually be hitting 30 homers in that Indians lineup and maybe committing the 10 errors that he committed with Baltimore this year? I don't think very much worse. Well, I agree. And the from the rest perspective on Cruz, when Jockety was asked about that on the caravan last year, they said, he said, well, we've got a healthy Ludwig coming back. Well, <laughs> not so much. And now they're going to pay Ludwig $4.5 million to walk away. And for another wow. $3.5 million, they could have had Cruz last year. I mean, it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but how could anybody – suspect that Ludwig coming off shoulder surgery would have been anywhere near as productive as Cruz. I mean, what Cruz hit 45 home runs two years ago or was leading the league even two years ago when he was with Texas had a great year. Then he got, you know, busted for the steroids. But, you know, that's you have to hand it to Baltimore. They, they took a chance on the guy and it, it, it panned out and, and he may take him to the World Series. Mark, you know, off the beaten point here, just very quickly, because I just saw this scroll across the TV screen a few few minutes ago. In the Balco 
case that the federal government is putting up against that biogenesis clinic, mm-hmm. they are not letting Balco out of – they have denied him bail. Now, this guy, granted, what he did was probably wrong in, in selling illegal drugs to athletes. But they were athletes, Mark. These athletes knew what they were getting. They knew what they were going to get this guy for, to get from this guy. Now, we've let worse people out on bail. I hate to get political here. We've let worse people out on bail than this guy. I I don't understand why this guy is being vilified as much as he is in the public eye just simply because a bunch of baseball players and maybe some football players bought steroids from him. Well, yeah, I think the steroid thing, well, number one, it's over and done because of the testing that's now in place. But it has changed the face of baseball in a lot of ways. And what I, I don't know where they draw the line between steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, which is a very general term, and uh, vitamin-enhanced approaches, vitamin-enhanced therapy. Where, where do you draw that line where you can take all the vitamins you want and the strengtheners and and, and the um, 5-hour energy drinks and all that stuff. 5-hour energy drinks, right. Yeah, I mean all the... Gatorade. Yeah, or Gatorade. I mean, where do you cut it off at? At some point, can you take aspirin or Advil, but you can't take Nuprin or... All those things enhance your performance. Vitamins enhance your body. Uh, all these enriched, I mean, <laughs> enriched bread is a enhancement. <laughs> so, and, and people say, well, yeah, but they're not going to hurt your body. You know, you take too many vitamins, it can hurt your body. And all those things you get at, at, at the health food store, are they not uh, enhancements? Uh, yes. So, tell me what's... Tell me what's right and tell me what's wrong. How, how do they define it, or have they? I I think they've defined it, and you know, but the way that they've defined it in some aspects, Mark, simply boggles the mind, especially the NFL, when you've got a guy, a linebacker for the Indianapolis Colts, that gets suspended for four games for taking a huh. fertility drug because he and his wife are trying to have a baby. Now, I think as far as I'm concerned, Mark, that's going just a little bit too far. Yes, and what they're forgetting is there is going to be, there's a kid in a chemistry class somewhere right now who is perfecting this new steroid that's not going to be detectable. And it's going to come back. I mean, it's the testing they have in place now will not survive the next year or two. I guarantee it. There will be other things that come across the table that people are going to be able to take. So, you know, I I have never been, as you know, we disagree on this, I've never been as staunchly against the steroids as others have been uh, because, number one, everybody was taking them. The pitchers and the hitters were taking them. And the the thing I didn't like about them is they hurt the body in some cases. I mean, you know, Matusek and some other football players have, have died because of steroids. So that clearly is something that had to be controlled. But aside from that, some of these things are so it's so marginal as to whether they are performance-enhancing drugs. 
or something good for your health to make you bigger and stronger naturally. Mark, is there any doubt in your mind who wins the National League Cy Young Award this year? No, but it's it's really a conundrum when you have Kershaw, who will win it again this year, uh, by a landslide, by the way. And the last two outings he's had in the playoffs, he's given up seven runs <laughs> back-to-back, which has never been done before. That's never been done in the history of playoffs. So, you know, I think Mattingly just let him in too long, left him in too long, didn't trust the bullpen. And uh, he got the ball up a couple times. And, I mean, the, the Cardinals, they had a bunch of ground ball singles through the middle. You know, they put the bat in the ball. Is there any doubt in your mind who the National League Most Valuable Player Award winner is? Um, yeah, there is. I mean, who, most... who do you think? Oh gosh, um, you know, you, you think... I ask that because I'm leading up to something. Well, okay, let's look at the teams, and then maybe we can discuss it. Look, look at the teams in the playoffs, which you would assume would have a leg up on the MVP. Take pictures out of it for the for the moment, unless you want to have Kershaw as the MVP. Well, but, see, that's that's who I think is going to be end up being the MVP is Kershaw. Okay, well, he, he, in this year, you might be right because as you look at the four teams that are left in the playoffs, or even the six teams that made it. I mean, McCutcheon probably had more impact on the Pirates than any player. But was he better than Kershaw or more valuable? I doubt it. Uh, look at the Giants. Name one player on the Giants that could be an MVP. You can't. Okay. How about the Cardinals? No. no. There's one other guy that I'm thinking of. Well, on the Nationals, um, I can't think of one guy uh, other than a pitcher that's had a standout year, what team are we leaving out? Uh, it's not a playoff team. Giancarlo Stanton, I think, if you don't vote for Kershaw, it's got to be Stanton. Yeah, but then that old conundrum of, you know, he, he played for a team that finished what, fourth in their division? No, they finished second, or third. Third, okay. I, it was third yeah. or fourth. But, you know, how valuable is he to a team that finishes third place? Well, I think when you're coming from when you're looking at the Miami situation, I think very valuable because last last year they were last. Yeah, and he had a stupendous year, and, and well, he had a, he had a very very good year, let's put it that way. But mm-hmm. it, it, the argument's going to be, and I'm not disagreeing with his his statistics. The question will be, and how the writers approach this, what player led his team and is not the best player. Now, that this gets to the old term, most outstanding player? Yeah, Stanton. Most outstanding performance? Yeah, Stanton. But most valuable to a particular team, that's where you have, you know, I remember Bill Mazeroski, what he, or remember Dick Grote for the Pirates. He, he won MVP one year back in the 60s. Uh, and he was a shortstop who didn't hit very much and was an average fielder, but he had a lot of big hits. So it's how you define most valuable player. Does it make you win? Or is it the guy who hits 65 home runs for a last place team? That, that, that you know, like Sosa did that with the, with the Cubs. He had some unbelievable years, but the Cubs finished last. 
So how valuable was he to the team? That's that's the question. All right. As far as the American League most valuable player, I think there's no doubt in anybody's mind it will be Mike Trout. Well, finally. He should have won it the last two years. <laughs> really, he should have. Which, which brings me, Mark, you talk about a conundrum, because I don't think there's any doubt that Kershaw will be both the Cy Young and National League most valuable player. I, I think that's that's a slam dunk. And Trout will be the American League MVP. Where there is going to be... Mm. A mixed vote is American League Cy Young, and that is going to come down between Felix Hernandez of Seattle and Corey Kluber of the Cleveland Indians. Now, that being said, you saw both pitchers pitch this year, Mark. In your in your eye, and knowing what you do about the stats and what, what has happened, because as you know, I'm going to fill you full of numbers here in just a minute. Who's your thought about who the AL Cy Young Award winner is? I only saw uh, Hernandez pitch twice on TV. I, I didn't see him in person. I saw Kluber pitch about five times, once in person. And Kluber was as unhittable with stuff that didn't, on the on the scoreboard, the radar gun didn't overpower you. I think he was throwing 94 uh, but his breaking ball and his control and his change, they were virtually unhittable. I mean, his slider was breaking 18 inches, and I'm not exaggerating, for a slider. It wasn't a curveball, it was a slider. And he was throwing like a Frisbee up there. And guys couldn't make any solid contact. So I saw him the second half of the year four times, and I don't think the team that he pitched against, including the Reds once, got more than four hits, anybody. Now, Hernandez, when, he, when the season started, he was completely overpowering and dominant. But he got lit up uh, two or three times near the end of the year when they needed him to pitch well. They, they could have been in the playoffs if he'd you know, pitched as well as he can pitch. Now, statistically, uh, Kluber probably had better numbers, although I don't know that to be the case. But to me, he looked overpowering and... I wouldn't want to face either of them, but when I saw Kluber, he looked like the best pitcher in the league. Well, you asked, Mark, let me deliver. Here are the numbers as far as Corey Kluber and Felix Hernandez are compared. Each pitcher started 34 games this year, so you got a pretty good basis. Now, Kluber went 18-9, and Hernandez 15-6, and so... Kluber had three more wins, but he also had three more losses. As far as strikeouts were concerned, Kluber, 269, Hernandez, 248. They both pitched virtually the same amount of innings. Kluber had 235 and two-thirds innings, Hernandez, 236. So just a third of an inning difference. ERA, Kluber was a little higher, 2.44 to 2.14 for Hernandez. As far as walks were concerned, Kluber had five more, 51 to 46. And as far as the whip is concerned, Kluber was 1.09, Hernandez was 0.92. Now, how do you decide who the best pitcher is based upon those stats? It's virtually impossible. Well, I don't think it is. I think if, as you read those off, I think Hernandez statistically had a better year in just about every category. 
Uh, he had a better winning percentage. They, they both were, what, nine games over 500. But he, he had, as you said, Kluber had more wins, but he had more losses. Uh, every other statistic, I think, uh, belonged to Hernandez. He had, he had a lower whip. He had a lower ERA, and that ERA difference was was not insignificant. It was three three tenths of a no, of a, it's three tenths of a point, right? Yeah. So it wasn't that you know that that was reasonably a much better ERA for Hernandez. So I don't know how Kluber makes the argument or or, or supporter of Kluber that he should win statistically, but that's not the only that's not the only measurement. Again, you get back to where did the team finish? Uh, what kind of, you know, when did he get his wins? Uh, Kluber got most, not most of his wins, but he seemed to me that Kluber was, had a much better second half record than Hernandez did. I don't know that to be the case either, but it seems No, like you're right. He sputtered a little bit in August in about three consecutive starts, but then he, he regained his stuff and finished strong down the stretch. Yeah, I think the last six weeks of the season, he was the best pitcher in baseball. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Uh, I don't know what he was like in April or May or Hernandez, but they, I mean, these are two guys you can't go wrong with, but I bet the, the analysts are going to look at the Hernandez numbers and say they are better than Kluber's. No, I agree with you. I, I think, I think Hernandez is going to end up being the Cy Young Award winner. I just wanted to point out just how close it really is. I think Hernandez is going to end up winning it by a landslide and Kluber will be number two. You know, but I, I, it, it's a little closer. It would be fun to look at, and I don't have them in front of me right now, but uh, if you could pull up Johnny Cueto's numbers and compare them to Kluber and to Hernandez. Well, let me give me a second, and I'll try that. Because Johnny Cueto this year, he, he won 20, I think it was what, 20 and 8 or 20 and 9, and he was a lot like Kluber in the second half of the year. I mean, people were missing his pitches by a foot. And he's so strong and he was still in he was still in ninety five, ninety six and then breaking guys' backs with a with a change up that came in and hit him on the shoes. Uh and I think his ERA was competitive with those guys. Innings pitch probably competitive. His whip Okay, let's I've got it right here. Okay. You're right. Twenty and nine was his record. His ERA was two point two five, which Finishes right in the middle between Kluber and Hernandez. Game started 34, exactly the same. Innings pitched, he pitched more than Kluber and Hernandez, 243 point and two-thirds innings. Um, let's see here. As far as uh, whip, 0 0.96. So he was a little worse than Hernandez, but better than Kluber. How about strikeouts? 242, which uh, was not as much, not as many as Kluber and Hernandez. Okay. And walks were concerned as far as walks. He did walk more than what Kluber and Hernandez did. Kluber had 51, Hernandez uh, 46, Cueto had 65. Okay. Well, he obviously those guys had great years, but then when you bring up uh, the Dodger left-hander, <laughs> his numbers are just ridiculous. His, I mean, this is Sandy Koufax type stuff. Although Koufax never got beat up in the in the uh, playoffs like he did. Boy, am I glad you brought that name up. I was talking with my my father 
yesterday. And he was upset at the guys, the announcers on TNT the other night for trying to compare Clayton Kershaw with Sandy Koufax because his opinion was, and I agree with him as far as this is concerned, none of the guys that were doing the comparisons on TV were old enough to see Sandy Koufax pitch. So pardon my question on this. Because of your age, old soothsayer. But I know you saw Koufax pitch. So I'm coming to the horse's mouth. Compare Clayton Kershaw with Sandy Koufax. There's not much of a comparison on a number of levels. Uh, Number one, I sat behind home plate during a series when the Dodgers played the Reds back in, let me see, 64, 65, 66 in that era. And I remember sitting behind home plate, and Koufax was pitching on Sunday afternoon. He pitched a two-hit shutout against the Reds. And, Dave, you could hear the breaking ball break. He was unhittable. He was throwing probably 99, close to 100. His his curveball broke more than anybody's curveball in the history of the game, and that's been measured, his, his breaking ball. He didn't throw a slider. He threw a curveball. And it was a 12-6 to curveball. He had no changeup. And he, he, he was unhittable. And not only that, but the players back then, there were fewer players in the league. The hitters were much better back then comparatively because you had smaller rosters and everybody on the team could hit 20 home runs. I mean, it was a much different era of baseball back then. Uh, this was before divisional play. And, and you know, you had 18, 8 or 10 team leagues, and that was it. So you had much, much deeper talent on the 25-man roster than you do today. And a lot of easy outs. Uh, there was no designated hitter. And Sandy Koufax, obviously I'm not old enough to, to have seen Walter Johnson and some of those guys who say that he threw over 100 miles an hour and so did Bob Feller. But from a left-hander's perspective, nobody threw as hard as Koufax except maybe Randy Johnson. But Johnson did not have Koufax's breaking ball. And anybody... So- I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. Anybody who compares Kershaw with Koufax means they haven't seen Koufax. That, 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 was, that was my dad's point, was that these guys, because he asked me if I remembered Koufax pitching. Now, I'm 54 years old. No, I don't remember Koufax pitching. That was just a couple of years before I start remembering you know, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and pitchers like that. So he knew that these announcers on TV could not remember Koufax. You know, now Vince Scully wanted to compare Koufax and Kershaw. That's the perfect guy to do it. Maybe Dick Enberg also, who is the play-by-play guy for uh, the San Diego Potters. Maybe even John Miller. John Miller's in his 60s, so maybe he would remember it. But if you had to compare somebody in the past, to Clayton Kershaw, who do you think he most closely resembles? Um, Sam McDowell, uh, who Ooh, threw. Wow, I didn't even think about him. Yeah, Sam, left-hander with the Indians, and he he had a lot of stuff. Good breaking ball, scary guy, probably six five. Uh, he he was a real strong-looking guy. I'm, I'm thinking just left-hander. If you want to compare left-handers, obviously. Uh, Randy Johnson 
I think was more overpowering than Kershaw by far. Um, he maybe not didn't have the stats for whatever reason, but he, he did not want to face, face Randy Johnson. I mean, he was a scary dude, 6'10", throwing 100 miles an hour with a nasty attitude, um, and a great slider who nobody could put the, the ball on, uh, put the bat on. So McDowell, I'm trying to think who else from the left side. Uh, oh, what about Carlton? Carlton, I think, was better than Kershaw, but I was thinking Vita Blue. Uh, Vita Blue reminds me of Kershaw. Uh, threw really hard, good breaking ball, didn't last very long. He kind of burned himself out. But Carlton, in fact, I happened to live in Philadelphia when Carlton pitched, and he had the most remarkable season in the history of any pitcher. Uh, it was in 1973 when he won 27 games for a team that won like 52 games. I mean, he won, he won more than half or half their games. It was unbelievable. Uh, he, he just could not be hit. And somehow, because his team didn't score any runs, I think he lost, I don't know, nine or ten games, something like that. But uh, mm-hmm. he was he was an amazing, amazing pitcher. And he did that for for a decade. So when I think about Kershaw, I put him in that ilk with, with uh, you know, he, he's, he certainly has to be mentioned with Koufax. But if I have one guy, it's going to be Carlton, Randy Johnson, Koufax. That's the ilk of the top and McDowell in his heyday. Can you think of any left-handers we've omitted? Remember Bob Veal for the Pirates? No, I don't remember him. He was back in the in the '60s, and he was a power power pitcher for the Pirates, uh, and, and won a lot of games for them. But uh, you know, you think at the left side, a lot of left-handers that we recall, like Tom Glavin and uh, Freddie Norman and those guys, they were soft throwers. Even Tom Browning, they didn't throw real hard. Uh, there's only been a handful of guys on the left side who really threw hard, and you can count them on one hand. What about Ron Guidry? Uh, yeah, great curveball, uh, explosive fastball. Uh, didn't last as long as some of the other guys did. He, he was a small guy, and uh, he, he pitched for the Yankees. You know, during a time they weren't great, and uh, he could have won a lot more games. But he 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 was a max effort guy every pitch. He threw hard every time. But I, I don't think he had the the dominating presence on the mound that a Carlton had or um, certainly a Koufax had or some of these other guys. I, he's not that, uh, not quite at that level, I don't think. In, in your mind, throughout your years of covering baseball, because I've got one guy in mind to answer this question, who had the most dominating year, whether he was a flash in the pan or not, as far as a pitcher is concerned that you can remember? Bob Gibson in 1968. He had he had an That's 0- what I was going to say. Okay, he had an 0- what 0.98 ERA for the year, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was a starter. He started like 35 or 40 games for them, and and he was the reason they changed the uh, the height of the mound because people could not hit him. And and he talk about a mean sob on, on the mound. That was Bob Gibson. Yeah, uh, and he, he and McLean had the same year, but everybody everybody forgets that McLean won 31 games that year too. Yeah, that's right. And I think the reason they forget it, Mark, is because Gibson outpitched him in the World Series that year. 
Yeah, and, and don't forget, too, that the reason he won 31 games, I mean, you mentioned that all three of the pitchers we analyzed tonight had 34 starts. They were working on a five-day <laughs> rotation, and McLean yeah. was working on a four-day rotation, and he was getting probably 42 or 43 starts. Yes, yes. And can you remember the other pitcher on that Detroit staff? Mickey Lolich. Mickey Lolich. But can you remember another pitcher on the Cardinal staff? Uh, John Tudor uh, in 68. Um, in 68? I guess he was later than that, wasn't he? Yeah, I, was, yeah, I thought, yeah. Uh, how about uh, uh, Lindy McDaniel? See that I I can't remember another pitcher on the Cardinals staff. Was Cart was Carlton on the on the staff then? I know he got traded in '72. He could have been. Uh, Ernie Brolio was on that staff. Yeah. Uh, he, remember who he got traded for? Uh, Lou Brock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean it, it's interesting looking back at at some of these names and and trying to coordinate what's going on I mean and when you look at this mark I mean I I, I kind of want to go back to the question that you you asked me before as far as what the Indians are going to do and I, I think it's fairly interesting to take a look at you know earlier tonight you went over what the Reds have to do as far as what happened with their money situation and are they going to blow up their pitching staff just to do it well right now the Indians have Nine players and $54 million tied to those contracts coming up next year. They've got an option on Mike Avillis. It's a $3.5 million team option or a $250,000 buyout. I think they're going to take the option on him. Now, they've also got uh, $12 to $15 million in arbitration costs. So right now, going into next year, they've got about 72 to $75 million tied up. Now, there is some flexibility because in the past few years, they've operated with a, a salary of around $85 million. So what you're looking at is they're capable of adding a contract of around 10 to $12 million. Uh, so I don't know who you can get for that kind of money. I do know that they're interested in Victor Martinez, who, by the way, the Tigers are out of it. Um, they've won exactly the same amount of playoffs in two years that the Indians have won in two years, which is none. But nonetheless, Victor Martinez is out uh, at Detroit, and so is Max Scherzer. I actually think Scherzer is going to end up in San Francisco. I don't know why. It's just a gut feeling. Where Martinez ends up, I'm not sure, but I know he wouldn't mind coming back to Cleveland either. But, Mark, if you're the Indians, do you go after a guy like Victor Martinez, who's the same guy you've got in Carlos Santana? Uh, well, yeah, he, he's such a great hitter. I, I don't think you can hurt yourself by by adding him to, to the to the roster. I mean, he's, he's a great hitter. And at the middle of the year or even in August, I read a statistic about the number of strikeouts he had. And it was ridiculously low. He just never strikes out. Uh, so he's a great hitter. Uh, the, the Indians need that. They need that bat. They need that power in there. And you know, I, I think he'd be a great addition. I don't think he fits for the Reds. I don't know where you play him. 
but he's yeah. The uh, only place he'd be able to play, Mark, is first base. Yeah, in the field. So he doesn't he doesn't make sense for the Reds, but I think he does for the Indians, and he could DH, and he could you know he he's the bat you need or a bat like that. Uh, that changes your lineup dramatically having him in there. Uh, he makes everybody a better hitter. Oh, I agree. I I think then you could you can package up Chisenhall and and maybe Murphy and a young pitcher like a Salazar and go out and get yourself a third baseman uh, to come in and play third. You can put uh, Victor Martinez in the cleanup spot. Then you'd have, if you stay with Ramirez at short, you've got Bourne batting leanoff. Then you've got Ramirez batting second, Brantley third, Martinez fourth, Santana fifth. Then you put Gomes sixth. You've got... Uh, Nick Swisher, you can put him in left field next year and bat him seventh. And then you've got your third baseman, whoever that is, and your second baseman, which is Kipnis, and he's not going to bat ninth. So you've got your third baseman batting ninth, which you could indeed have at Chisholm Hall, and Kipnis maybe batting sixth, seventh, or eighth. So, I mean, that that does. That improves your entire lineup. I think they've got a shot at Martinez. But it's going to take a max contract. It's going to take a twelve or thirteen million dollar contract to get Martinez with the Indians. You know, a year ago today, if we were talking, we had to go back and replay our last year's final couple shows because I wonder if anybody could have guessed what would have happened to Justin Masterson in two thousand and fourteen. I mean, this guy was projected to be not only your number one starter but perhaps one of the top three to five pitchers in the American League. And he fell off the face of the earth. Any idea why? What did you see in his either delivery? Did he change anything? Was he out of shape? Did the hitters just catch on? What happened to this guy? I think three things happened to him. Two two things happened to him. One was I think the contract situation with him in spring training messed with his head. And the second thing was... He actually lost his arm slot, his release point, and he never could regain it. And don't hold me to this, but Mark, I don't even think he's on the postseason roster with the Cardinals. If he is, he was not going to be. If he did, if he made it, he made it at the very end. Yeah, I think he's buried so far, and he's a free agent this year. He's not going to be back with the Cardinals. They're they're not going to re-sign him. Um, I don't think the Indians are going to go out and sign him. But I'll tell you what, our producer Greg Mitchell hit that thing right on the head that the Indians were going to wait until the trading deadline and they were going to take a shot that either Masterson was going to be having a good year and they could get some good material for him or if he was having a bad year they could trade him and get something for him. And he was right. They had it in their mind to trade him at the deadline and they did. Yeah, and the other thing I want to bring up are the, the, the two trades that went awry. Uh, one with John Lester going to the A's. And um, what do you think about that trade? And, and do you think they, the A's made the right move? Because when they lost Cespedes, that team began a spiral they never recovered from. Mark, that was the opinion that you and I had at the time. Yeah, Billy Bean was going for it. But the problem is is that he depleted his hitting attack 
while increasing his pitching. And I remember Gabe Paul, back when he was general manager of the Indians, before he ever took over the Yankees, Gabe Paul said, you never trade an everyday player for a pitcher. And in this case, he was absolutely right. Because, yeah, Lester pitched an outstanding game against Kansas City, but then Oakland couldn't keep it up because they didn't have the hitting to keep up with Kansas City in that one-game playoff. And in all honesty, Mark, you and I both know, Oakland had the best record in baseball when they made that trade. And it just, I don't know what it did to that team, but they just went spiraling downward after they made that trade. It looked like a good deal. You and I both thought they gave up too much because their pitching staff was pretty good the way it was, even without Lester. But, boy, when they gave up Cespedes, I did. I thought that was too much, and I think you did too. Yeah, and, I, I again, they, they people say that it's a chemistry thing. I don't necessarily believe in chemistry. I think when you're winning, you have good chemistry. When you don't, you, you have bad chemistry. But, uh, you know, John, the irony is that the Red Sox, with what they got from Oakland, they could still get Lester back next year. He's a free agent. Yes. So, I mean, what a great move by the front office of the Red Sox uh, to make the move they did. And, you know, the the other move, I'm just thinking, I guess it, who, the Cardinals, who did they give up for what they got uh, at, the, at the trading deadline? Oh, for Justin Masterson or yeah. for Lackey? For Lackey. Um, not much. I mean, it was it was some minor league players. It was oh, Alan Craig too. Well, well, the other major course was was David Price going to Detroit, and that didn't work out so well either for Detroit. And you know, we're always encouraging these teams to go out there and make the mega deal, make a move, make a move. But this year, it did not seem to work out for the teams that were aggressive and went out there and gave up a, a, a lot of young talent. Uh, to get the pitchers they got. Now next year Price might win 30 games. Who knows? And, you know, because I think they signed him for at least a couple of years. But you know, the, these these big trades can blow up in your face, and uh, you, you can it can mess up your entire organization for years to come. Uh, not only Mark, I've got a I've got a question the way Brad Osmus managed that team. I mean, not only the rotation that he went with against Baltimore, but that last move that he made with the tying run at second base and he brought up, uh, I can't even remember the guy's name, Hector something, that had a total of 20 major league at-bats in the second half of the season for the Tigers. And their entire season came down to this guy? Well, I don't know the roster enough to know who was the alternative hitter, but you talk about a team that was supposed to win, wow. I mean, they were supposed to win the division. They were supposed to win the American League Championship Series, and they're supposed to win the World Series. Anything less than that was a failure. Well, they didn't even get out of the uh, the first round. Yeah, and, and how much longer can they expect their owner to live? <laughs> Every year, they say it's the... Hey, you know, they're shooting the shooting the moon to win the World Series for this owner because he's 87 years old and he's about ready to die. Well, how many more years can they continue to keep that mantra up? Well, yeah, and also that, that team, is they're going to 
lose their uh, what's his name, the catcher you just mentioned, um, Victor Martinez. Mar- Martinez and Cabrera is slowing down. You know, and they yes. have they have a lot, and they gave up the center fielder and the trade to to the Mariners, Austin and, Jackson. Yeah, so they're they're a team that may have peaked and are in decline now, which I think opens the door for the Indians. I mean, there's, there's nobody dominant. I mean, Kansas City, I, I love the fact that they're in it. If I have a favorite now, I, I hope Kansas City wins it all because they've, they've suffered for so long. It's nice to see a new team in the playoffs. But uh, it's likely you could have uh, Baltimore play Washington in the World Series or you could have Los Angeles play San Francisco. Well, no, you can't do that. But you could have them in the in the championship game. Yes. And you know what's interesting? You bring up Josh Masterson, another Indians pitcher that you never hear anything about anymore, except out of me because I did not like this guy, never liked the trade the Indians made, and I called Baltimore crazy for signing Ubaldo Jimenez to a four-year deal. And Jimenez, Mark, is not even in the rotation for the Orioles in this playoffs. Yeah, that's that's one of the situations. He caught lightning in a bottle. Was that in 2010, the first half of 2010 in Colorado? Yes. You couldn't hit him with a with a boat oar. Uh, he, he was so overpowering. And, you know, you wonder out there, particularly in Colorado, what he had that year that made him so devastating. But if you go back and look it at was this. Call, it was called incentive. Mark, I still go back to the whole thing. That was his contract year. He wanted a new contract. If you remember, and go back and look it up, when he had that outstanding first half, they signed him to a new contract right around the All-Star break, and he he went right downhill again. Same thing with the Indians. He got to his contract year, pitched great the second half last year, got his new contract, and look where he is again. Yeah, it's uh, you know p- pitching is the the riskiest part of being a general manager is how do you sign and control pitching given the injury? I mean, almost every pitcher is going to have some kind of arm problems during their career, and the question is how do they overcome them? How do they treat them? What are they going to be at after after that injury does occur? And in some cases, these guys are even better after they have surgery. And you know the Reds are going to be faced with a huge decision this winter on what to do with their pitching staff, as I mentioned earlier today. Uh, who do you have? Who do you keep in that rotation? And you know Price made the comment today or yesterday. I read it online that he's not even considering at this point Chapman as a starter. I, I don't know how you can't consider him as a starter. This guy is the most devastating. Talk about a devastating left-hander. Uh, he, he rivals anybody I've ever seen. He, he, he's faster than anybody. He's now developed a changeup that he throws at 91 miles an hour. It moves a foot, and he's got a slider you cannot hit. He may not throw it for a strike, but you can't hit it. And you Well, we brought that up a little while ago. Could Jockety be posturing because... They're going to try to re-sign Chapman to a contract, and if he says he's a reliever, he can sign him to a contract, which is somewhere around 
eight to ten million dollars a year as a reliever. Whereas if if he puts him as a starter, Mark, you know the going rate for a starter is around at least twenty. Well, it's twenty if they're proven, like Kershaw or or or, or Cueto. Uh, but I don't think it's proven for for Chapman. But you might be right. But I, I think they would have talked to Chapman or his agent. Uh, I, I don't think he he could command that kind of contract. But he is arguably, you know, he had one horrible relief appearance against Colorado where he gave up five runs and in, in without getting anybody out. And that raised his ERA from like 1.25 to almost 3. And then he worked it back down. He ended up with a 2.00 ERA. But he was as unhittable out of the bullpen as anybody has ever been in the history of baseball. He struck out two guys per inning. <laughs> he had 100 strikeouts, and he only pitched 50 innings. You know, that's right. It's unbelievable. So how could you not try to get at least 200 innings out of that arm as opposed to 50 or 60? I, I don't understand that math. I don't, well, let, let's not get into the jockety thing either. You know, I, again, tonight, because you know how I feel about jockety and Mark Shapiro. I think they're right up there on the same pedestal, which is weird, but nonetheless, because both of them, I think, are dragging their organizations down. Mark, I don't. what's the temperature down there? It's about 45 to 50 right now. Same thing here. And we're continuing to play baseball. And every year we get into this thing where the cold weather starts interfering with the games. It gets colder. You see guys blowing in their hands. You see every time they breathe, you you can see it, uh, especially in certain areas like St. Louis. It's a little cold tonight uh, in Washington. They played an afternoon game, but uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, that was... Uh, in San Francisco today, but over the weekend they were playing afternoon games in Washington still. It's a little chilly there, and if they get into the World Series, Mark, especially if it ends up being, like you said, Baltimore and Washington, it's going to be a little chilly. I've got a way, Mark, that these Major League teams, Major League Baseball, could actually reduce the time that they have spending going all the way through the end of October when the World Series could actually begin right about now or this weekend. And it's not going to cost any games. It's not going to cause the season to begin any earlier. It's just one simple move that they could make. Enlighten me. Are you on pins and needles for this? I am. I am shaking with anticipation. And I'll explain why. Make Saturdays, doubleheader Saturdays. From May through August, let's figure just for the sake of of math, there are four Saturdays in every month. That's four months. That's 16 more games that you will have played between May and August. For example, this year, the Indians went into September with 26 games left. The Reds went into September with 25 games left. Now, these don't have to be traditional doubleheaders. They can be day-night doubleheaders. Now, the reason I didn't say Sunday is because a lot of teams don't want to play Sunday night games. They want that to be a getaway time. 
So make them on Saturdays. So you got a doubleheader on Saturday, maybe one that starts at 1.30 and another one that starts at 7 o'clock if you're the Reds and the Indians. That cuts it down to 16 games. That means they've got, let's say, around 10 or 11 games left in the month of September, Mark. They could actually start the playoffs around September 20th, and we'd be in the World Series by now. Okay, I think it's a pretty good idea, and I've got something to add to it that would make it even a better idea. Allow those teams on doubleheader Saturday to expand their rosters from 25 to 30 players just for that game. I like that idea. So then They if, already let them go to 26. That's right. Let them go to 30 just for doubleheader Saturday uh, so their pitching staff doesn't get wrecked for a month. And they're, you know they have some position players that don't have to play both ends of a doubleheader, and let the managers manage that that part of it. And I think it's a good idea, Dave. I hate God, I hate saying that that you came up with a good idea, <laughs> but it, it is it, a good idea. And I like your idea too, and I think the union would like your idea because it's going to give more players major league service. Yeah, and it's it's a way to. Uh, I, I think the way they have it now is that bringing that guy up, that 26 guy, does not go against his waiver or his uh, uh, his call-ups. I think it's limited to, what, to three call-ups per year or something like that. There's a rule there that uh, it doesn't it doesn't hurt the team by bringing that player up. But, yeah, I think by, that's a good idea. And uh, you could even have uh, split doubleheaders if you wanted to, I guess. Does, is that part of your rule? Would they be split? Right. I mean, they could. It could be a day-night doubleheader. It could be a split doubleheader. You know, I know that the that the general rule is right now they don't like doubleheaders because it cuts back on a gate receipt. Well, this stops that problem. Yeah. And, just... and you know, next year they start the season on April sixth. Both the Indians and the Reds start on April sixth. I think opening day is actually April fifth. You could still start it. You know, or or if you wanted to, Mark, you could start the season a week later. You're not going to reduce the amount of time that the players have off. They still have the regular All-Star break time off. Uh, all it does is just increase the number of doubleheaders that everybody has. You play them on Saturday. Now, the only thing that you might have a problem with is if a doubleheader gets rained out, then you've got to make up two games instead of one. The other thing I would suggest <coughs> that Major League consider is shortening spring training. I think that's the most ridiculous thing, that they have almost two months of spring training. It starts the, middle of, the first week in February, and opening day is until, you know, the first week in April, for gosh sake. Why right. need eight weeks spring training or seven weeks or even six weeks? These guys are staying in shape all year now. They come into spring training in shape. You don't need 60 days to get your swing down or get your arm in shape. You just don't. No, I agree with you. I think that that's, you know, you're right. They come into they come into training camp now in shape, you know, four weeks, probably starting at, you know, the last week of February, starting to play the games the first week of March, maybe even come in the first week of March and start playing them the second game and only get, you know, 20 games in during spring training instead of what, they play 25, 30? Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, I mean that that might be the the best thing that they could do, um, and then get right into the season. That, the, there's a couple of ideas right there, Mark. Right now we've got Kansas City and Baltimore 
for the American League. The National League is still going on. San Francisco lost today, so they lead 2-1 to one over Washington. The Dodgers and St. Louis are playing right now. That series is tied up at 1-1. First of all, who do you pick between Kansas City and Baltimore, and who do you think will win these two divisional series here going on in the National League right now? My my heart says Kansas City, but my, if I was betting, I'd say Baltimore. They've got good pitching. They've got more power. What they have to be concerned about is Kansas City is on an emotional high now, and they can they can steal you know five or ten bases in a game if you let them. But I, I think Baltimore is the team to beat uh, for everything. I think they're the best team in baseball right now. Overall, they hit 205 home runs, and they've got good pitching. And they've got a great bullpen. Uh, so I, I would say Baltimore is going to pull that out. They might even win that. They could sweep that series or win it in four games. Uh, I think the National League is a lot more uh, up in the air. Um, you know, Washington, even though they're down two to one, uh, they have a chance to sweep that series. And with that pitching they have, that's that's really a good team. Uh, the Giants and the Dodgers, I think the Dodgers are by far better. I mean, Almost every position, they're better than the Giants. But the Giants just have a way to win. They, they're they one of those teams that, like, like the Braves, they just, I don't know how they do it, but they keep doing it. What What's your dream World Series matchup? Uh, I think Baltimore and Los Angeles would be a great World Series. Uh, I know the Washington fans would like to play Baltimore in the World Series. That, uh that could happen, but I, I think L.A. is the best team in the National League, followed closely by Washington, and then the Giants and the Cardinals. I think the Cardinals are the weakest of the four teams in the in the National League, but again, they they have a tendency to win big games. Uh, who do you like? My dream matchup is Washington and Baltimore, because I think that's the matchup that's the only way you can keep Congress in Washington during the winter months. <laughs> that that would be my dream matchup. Who do I think it's going to be? I think it's going to be Baltimore and the Dodgers. I've just got this gut feeling it'll be Baltimore and the Dodgers, and we'll revisit, what was it, 1966 that those two teams played? That's right. That's right. 66, long time ago. Did you hear, fi- final thing on tonight's show, did you hear what Eric Hosmer did last night in Kansas City after they beat the Angels? No. He tweeted out on his Twitter account that he was going to be at a certain bar in Kansas City. And from 10 to 11, he was going to be buying drinks for everybody that came into that bar for one hour. God. And he did it. Oh, that they is said cool. that, that, tab, that tab came to over $25,000. He just put his credit card in the hand of the barkeep and said, the drinks are on me. What a what a class act. That's really cool. <laughs> and Sandy Alomar Jr. and Jay Bell are up for the Arizona job. Do you think either one of them will get it? Uh, Jay Bell might because he's a real popular guy in Arizona. You know, when he remember when he hit the home run to win the million dollars for the woman? <laughs> yes. Uh, and he had a great career out there, a good player. Yeah, I think Jay Bell might have a shot at it. Well, We'll see, and don't forget, you know, I ask every week, what's the uh, uh, schedule for the Reds and the Indians? Well, don't forget, opening day is April 6th, the Reds against Pittsburgh, the Indians against Houston. David, before you go, 
1966 Baltimore. What did they have on that team that has never been repeated? 66? Yep. I don't know. They had four 20-game winners. Oh, I thought that was 71. No, it was in the 60s. Was it? Yep. Okay. You remember yeah, who, um, who they were? I remember who the guys were in 71. Who's that? It was McNally, Cuellar, Dobson, and Palmer. Well, Dobson, they, if you, I, I'm pretty sure it was 1966, but I could be wrong. But it was Cuellar, Palmer, Estrada, uh, McNally, and Dobson were the guys that uh, were on that staff, and four of them won 20 games. Pretty good staff. Yeah. Yeah, not a bad not a bad staff at all against the Dodgers staff that had Drysdale and Koufax. Yeah, talk about pitchers. <laughs> hey, we'll talk again next week, Mark. Have a good one, David. That's going to do it for us tonight. Don't forget the Ultimate Sports Talk Show coming up Thursday night at 7 o'clock. I'm going to be talking with John Hartsmark, our hockey expert, because the NHL is getting underway on Thursday night. And don't forget we'll be bringing you the Northwestern at Waynedale football game Friday night here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. That'll be at 710 with the pregame show. And Mark and I will be back again next Monday night with another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That will be at 9 o'clock. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show, but most of all our thanks to you for listening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week, have a good night, everybody. <laughs>